0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's easy to think of faith as a binary concept. Either you have it or you don't. In reality, faith is more of a process or a journey with days of strength and weakness, and God is with us the entire way. Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series, Ruth, a story of God's steadfast love, with this message entitled Ruth 2, God's Steadfast Love for Doubters, which covers Ruth, Chapter 2. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law.
2: This is the word of the Lord. Two weeks ago in our Easter services, I, I posed a question uh, that's a key fundamental question to uh, Christianity, and it was simply the question, how do you view the Bible? Do you view the Bible as a, as a moral code Is a behavior modification system that we need to tap into to become better people? Or or do you view the Bible as uh, this grand story that God has written, this, this true story of his redeeming love for his people? And the central character of this story is Jesus, and the central theme of this story is the glory of God. I want to ask another question today that's perhaps... I would say, for sure, even more fundamental to what it is that we believe, and that's simply this. How do you view God? How do you view God? How do you perceive him? How do you comprehend him, understand him? What Even as you just heard that question, what were some of the first thoughts that went through your mind, the first images that came to mind? I had a professor in seminary who would say over and over and over again, the most important thought that you ever think is what you think when you think about God because it determines everything else about your life. What do you think when you think about God? How do you see him? How do you view him? Even more pointedly, though, to where we're headed this morning in this text is, how do you view God when nothing in your life seems to be going right? How do you view God when things are falling apart? How do you view God when you're dealing with sickness and disappointment and divorce and anger and broken relationships and evil and hardship? There's a certain truth for all of us to tap into this morning that we know is true. We just don't talk about it that often typically and that's simply this. Uh, it's, It's that you and I will endure hardship in this life. If you haven't already, you will. It's not a matter of if, it's when, it's going to happen because we live in a broken world and we live in broken bodies that all of which is tainted by sin and there is brokenness and chaos and there's sadness and there's disappointment And there's pain and there's suffering. And and so the question of how you view God is key. It's critical because how you view God will prove to be essential when the hardship comes. How do you deal with the hardship in light of how you view God? What happens for us, what's so natural for us, it's just in our instinct, it's within our nature of who we are is that when things get hard, no, no matter how long for some of us we've been in church, and heard about the goodness of God, the, the immediate instinct when things get really, really hard and difficult is to begin to doubt. To begin to doubt who God is and who the scriptures say he is, because our circumstances seem to scream with a megaphone that he's not good when the scriptures talking about his goodness feel like they're a whisper in the background. And our circumstances and our daily struggles that feel much more tangible than a God who we can't see or feel all the time is, is, seems to be like, he's forgotten me. And so we begin to struggle. We begin to ask ourselves the questions, does he really love me? Is he really for me? Is he good? Does he care? We even say, we even begin to feel like, why does he hate me so much? Because he, he's just, he continues to allow these things to happen and not just allow them, but according to the scriptures, he purposes them. Why is he so cruel? And so you may be here in church and you may be uh, one of those people that have walked through maybe not just one hard thing, but a number of hard things. And what you want to scream is, preacher, stop talking about how good God is and how loving he is, because that has not been my experience. And we struggle We struggle with doubt to believe that he is who the scriptures say he is. And in this book, Ruth, this little book, this little hidden gem in the Old Testament, what we get is we get a picture of God. We get a view of God that reminds us of his Hesed love. That's a Hebrew word. That in this book is translated in the English as kindness, the kindness of God. But other places in scripture you see it uh, translated as steadfast love of God. Sometimes the goodness of God, the kindness of God, sometimes the faithfulness of God. And here's why you see it translated so many different ways. This is why. It's because it's such a rich, thick, deep, complex word that we don't have in our English language one word that wraps it all up. And so when we hear this Hesed love of God, and by the way, I'm saying that in a very uh, American Southern way. If I were saying it in the Hebrew way, there'd be a lot of guttural thing going on here in my throat, but I'm not gonna do that. But this Hesed love of God is really the theme of the book of Ruth that regardless of circumstances, he is a God who is steadfast in his love for us. He is a God who is good. He is a God who is faithful to the faithless. He is a God who is kind beyond all our wildest imaginations. He is this God, even when our circumstances seem to be screaming to us that the opposite is true. And the the book of Ruth is one of those that that we pray and hope that by the end of this book, you are able to proclaim and shout to the heavens, he is good. His steadfast love, his hesed love is good. Ruth 2, where we're going to be today, it, it really begs us to ask two fundamental questions. Just trying to get it as simple as possible as we enter into the text here. And the two fundamental questions are simply this. It boils down to, do you view God, here's the first one, is your view of God anchored by faith in his steadfast love and faithfulness? Or is your view of God anchored by doubt in his steadfast love and faithfulness? It kind of boils down to, chapter two is begging us to ask that question. We're gonna see two characters in this story that you were introduced to last week if you were here as Caleb walked through chapter one with us, Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi is in a place of great doubt. She's in a place where she is very much leaning into the dark chaos and coma, if you will, of doubt. But Ruth is one who is leaning towards faith. Trusting in a God who is bigger than what our eyes can see. And for us, as we get to the end of this chapter, that's the question that we ask ourselves is, where am I? Do I lean, do I tend to lean towards doubt? Do I let my circumstances scream with the megaphone that God is not good? Or do I lean towards faith, believing the whisper of the scriptures over the megaphone of my circumstances? Which way do I lean? Reality is, is that we're in and out of both all the time. Some days you may catch me and I'm I'm very much in the place of doubt. Other days in a place of faith and we struggle and we fight. If you weren't here last week, let me give you just a quick recap. I'd strongly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon to get the full context of what's going on. But here's what's happening as we pick up in chapter two. You've got this family in Bethlehem right in the heart of the promised land of God, of Israel. You have Elimelech, who is the, the patriarch, the father, and his wife, Naomi, and they have two sons. And what we're also introduced to in the first chapter is that we're in the time, the days of the judges. And the days of the judges was a, a volatile time. It was a time where there was no king. And as Judges, the book of Judges says, that the people did what was right in their own eyes and they did evil all the time, and so it was a volatile time spiritually, and what would happen is that there was this cycle that would happen over and over and over again where God's people would be disobedient, they would would be apostate and go after other gods and and make idols, and then God would condemn them, and they would cry out to him in their woe and despair, and then he would raise up a judge who would rule, and under the rule of that good judge, there would be uh, prosperity and good reign for a while, and then when that judge died, the people of God would quickly forget God's goodness and provision. They'd go back into disobedience and the cycle would start all over again. And that was, that's, that's the time of the judges. And we know based on the first verse of chapter one of Ruth is that we're in a time, this story takes place in a time of God's condemnation of Israel, that they are in a time of disobedience because it says that there was famine in the land. And so what Elimelech and Naomi do is they take their family and instead of staying in the place where God has called them to be, uh, entrust his provision and move back into a place of obedience to say, okay, God is going to provide. They take matters into their own hands and they leave for a foreign land. They literally leave where they think the grass is greener to get food. And they don't just go to some foreign land. They go to a foreign land that, as scripture documents very well for us up into this point, has been an enemy of Israel. The land of Moab, the Moabites, who have been cruel to Israel. And so they go into Moab and they don't just go there to get a little food and come back, they stay and they stay for a decade. And in the midst of this disobedience of being out of the land of God, away from the hand of God and his provision, they experience the Consequences of their disobedience. Elimelech dies within those 10 years and her two sons who had married Moabite women, which is also against God's will for them in that day and time. Both her sons die. So now she's a widow with no inheritance and these two daughters-in-law that are not Israelites and she is in great despair. She has moved into this place, as I mentioned earlier, of a a doubt coma, a deep heart struggle with this God. And chapter one continues and ends with her encouraging her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to leave and to go back to their gods and back to their land, which tells you what she thinks about her God at the moment, that your gods surely are gonna be better to you than my God has been. You need to get away from me and go back to a place where things will go better with you than they have with me. And Orpah does it, she leaves and she goes back to her land and back to her gods. But Ruth, this foreigner, this Moabite shows great faith in being faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this is where you get the famous line at the end of chapter one, where "Where you go, I will go, where you say, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And you see this, this woman who is not in the family covenant of, of God, displaying great faithfulness to Naomi in the midst of her bitterness. And so chapter one ends with the emptiness of Naomi, the doubt of Naomi, and they are moving back to Bethlehem, going back to the place where they should have gone a long time ago. And so chapter two starts, with them coming back to Bethlehem. And it says this in verse one, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this is the narrator talking. Naomi is not aware that this Boaz person exists, or at least she may know he exists, but she has no expectation to run across him. And he's a, distant relative of her late husband, Elimelech. And so this is just kind of the intro into what's going on here as we move back into Bethlehem. Now, I want you to pay attention. I'm gonna highlight just a few things as we walk back through the story. I want you to pay attention to who has faith and who has doubt. Because right here in verse two, we get a huge window into the doubt of Naomi and the faith of Ruth. Watch what it says. It says, and Ruth... The Moabite, the author wants to continually remind us she doesn't belong here. She's not one of them, she's a foreigner. So often it reminds us that she's a Moabite. And Ruth, a Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now this is interesting. Here's why. She's a Moabite. She shouldn't know the law of God, but somewhere along the way, Presumably at some point before Naomi turned so bitter, she had been exposed to God's word. In Leviticus 19 and in Deuteronomy 24, it is told, it is, it is commanded by God that the law of God would be that for those who harvest their fields, that they are to leave the outer edges of their fields unharvested. So that... The needy among the Israelites, the poor and the needy, and the sojourner and foreigner who is among them may come and glean the outer edges of the field and therefore be provided for. She's aware of this. And not only is she aware of this law of God, she's believing the promise that people will honor it. Even in the days of the judges when people did what was evil in their own eyes. And so she's full of faith to say, I'm gonna go and glean and see if I can find a field where someone has left the edges of the field for people like me. And not only that, but she also says, and that I might find him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's not necessarily talking about a husband right there. She's just saying, look, I believe there could be somebody out there that God is going to give to provide for us in our time of need. She is acting, notice the action of faith. She's trusting God to do something that only he can do. And she's moving into it. She's not just sitting at home with Naomi and saying, God, bring us some barley. She's trusting that God's gonna provide, but there's action in faith. And she's moving out, trusting God's word. She's the Moabite, the non-Israelite, the non-covenant person in the family, if you will. Watch Naomi. Naomi, end of verse two. And she said to her, go, my daughter, which is kind of as if to say, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Go glean your heart out, babe. Just go do what you're going to do. He ain't going to provide. Ain't nothing going to happen. I mean, I've been through this. Look what he's done. He's taken everything away from me. You think you're going to go find a field? Okay. (laughs) That's cute. Go. Now, we don't know. We're not sure, but we think, and and when I say we, I mean scholars, not me. Scholars think that probably around the age of 50, 50 50-ish something is what Naomi, Naomi is, which means that she's older, but she's not old, which also means that she was probably able to go with Ruth into the fields, and she probably should have. Because as we read through the text, as you heard it read over, did you pick up on the two occasions where it talked about how dangerous it is for a young woman to be in the fields? Again, the days of the judges. One of the things that was happening, people are doing what is evil in their own sight. One of the things that was happening is that the fields were very dangerous with young men sexually abusing, harassing and molesting young women. And Naomi is so bitter And she's so full of doubt that God's going to do anything. She just says, yeah, go. I'm not even going to go with you. You're you're on your own. And Ruth goes, and verse three says this. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Listen to this language. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Boaz. She happened to come. The the literal translation there is she chanced upon chance, which doesn't make sense to us. It's kind of like us saying, and as luck would have it, which is a play on words. This is tongue in cheek from the author because the author knows and we understand that the sovereignty of God is such that everything is providential, nothing is coincidental. So it's just kind of this joke of it just so happened that she came across this field a man named Boaz. One of the things that is so important for us to realize that's true of this story but true of our lives is that God's sovereignty is not minimized according to the circumstance. He orchestrates everything. Everything is providential. Nothing is coincidental. Things that we see as coincidental are things that actually he has purposed that come straight from his hand. Where you live is purposeful. It's providential. You're there for a reason. Who you live by matters and is significant. God's purposed it. It's providential, who you pass in the grocery store that you may only pass once in your life. There's reason for that. Everywhere you go, everything that happens to you, even the things that we would look at and say, there's nothing about this that could be from God because there's nothing in this that is good. That's our definition of good. We don't know what he's up to. He's so much bigger than us. We're finite. He's infinite. Everything is providential. I love this quote from one of my favorite authors, a guy named Arthur W. Pink. He says this, He says, cultivate the holy habit of seeing the hand of God in everything that happens to you. Cultivate the holy habit of seeing the hand of God in everything that happens to you. This is not coincidental what's happening with Ruth here. And it's certainly not coincidental that Boaz is actually at the field. Like, that's, that's kind of out of the ordinary. The owners of the field, they didn't, they didn't always show up. They have their servants to do the work. But this particular day, it just so happened, as luck would have it, up oh, circumstance, I mean, uh, uh, coincidental, no, providential. He's there. And he notices Ruth. And it says that the first thing that came out of his mouth was the Lord bless you, not to Ruth, but to his servants, which tells us a lot about the heart of Boaz. The author is trying to help us to see that in the midst of a land of chaos and great disobedience and evil men, this is a worthy man, a worthy, godly man who we can tell a lot about someone by the first thing that comes out of their mouth. And that's unfortunate for some of us who don't make great good uh, first impressions. (laughs) But it's true, a lot of times, not always, we wanna be gracious with this, but a lot of times you can tell, it's the first thing that they're talking about themselves or are they asking questions about me? Well, for Boaz, the first thing that the author tells us is that he shows up onto the scene and he says, the Lord bless you to his servants, which means this is a safe place. And as the story goes, as you heard it read, I won't go into all the details, Ruth finds Boaz to be unbelievably gracious and kind. In verse eight, he says to her, listen to this. He says, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Remember what I said about how dangerous it was? Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Just the fact that he has to say that tells you kind of what the culture was in that day. But he's assuring her, it's safe here. You're safe under my watch. I will look after you. Verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth knows her place. She knows that according to the law of God, he should not be this kind to her, that he should be ignoring her as she stays on the outskirts of his field and comes no further. He has no obligation to talk to her. He has no obligation to be kind to her. He has no obligation to give her anything, yet he is moving towards her with unspeakable kindness and she recognizes it, understanding her place as a foreigner and she's undone by it. And she hits her face and she says, who am I that you would take notice of me? He says, I've heard everything that you've done. I've heard about your story. I've heard how faithful you've been to your mother-in-law and how you left your father and lo- uh, mother from a foreign land and came to a place that you don't know. I've heard all of that. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now make note of that because that's gonna come up. That same exact language is gonna come up again in chapter three next week because Boaz is not putting the dots together yet. He just thinks this is a really awesome young lady, uh, by the way, nothing at this point seems to be that there's any interest or intrigue with her that would be a uh, uh, sexual attraction. It's just simply, I, I'm very intrigued by the faithfulness of this woman. And he's not putting the dots together, that he's going to be the very vessel through which God provides this shelter that he's speaking of. And that he's going to be the key cog in the will that's going to be writing this story, not just for Ruth, but for the lineage of King David and then King Jesus. He's not seeing all that, how could he? He's just going, hey, this is really cool. I wanna be kind to you because you've come to the promised land of God. You've come to Israel to seek refuge under his wings. And God's going, yeah, and there's more to it, Boaz. It's gonna be through you. He doesn't know that yet, but watch what Boaz does. Boaz says, I'm not just gonna speak to you and be kind to you and leave you on the edges of the field, I'm gonna invite you in into the innermost places of my company. In verses 14 through 16, he invites her in to eat at his table. This foreigner, he's got other servants who are Israelites and this Moabite is now at the table. Can you imagine how they felt about that? This foreigner is now at the table and he says, come eat, dip your morsel of bread into my wine and fill yourself. And it says that she ate until she was satisfied and then had had leftovers, which more than likely she had not eaten like that in years. Not only that, he doesn't just invite her in to feast with him, he also sends her away with more. He says, I want you to just, not just glean the edges of the field, I want you to come and take the best of the harvest. And I will tell my guys to not reproach you they will not correct you. You can have the best part of the field and whatever you glean, you take home. So it says that by the end of the day, she had gleaned so much, she's taking home an AFA, which we go, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? I want you to imagine, because I'm telling you, this is precise calculations that I've done here, but I want you to imagine that she's carrying home the biggest bag of Alpo dog food you've ever seen. Okay. That's what she's carrying. That's about the same amount, right? She's carrying this this huge bundle of barley that's probably really hard for her to carry. And remember, Naomi's at home. Naomi was the one who said, yes, sweetie, go ahead. He ain't gonna do nothing. She shows up and remember, remember, I say this all the time. Don't read scripture two-dimensionally. They're not just words on a page. This is a story that really happened. These things actually occurred. So I want you to imagine what was Naomi's face when Ruth walks through the door with her Alpo bag of barley and she's doing this number and she drops it at her feet. And Naomi goes, where have you been gleaning today? Blessed be the man who would do this. And it's the first inkling that we get in the story of the thawing of Naomi's heart. That that God has not forgotten me. And he's using this foreigner who doesn't even, who has not even believed in my God until recently to show me his faithfulness. And so Naomi says this in verse 20. She says, Uh, By the way, she says, where have you been gleaning? And and Ruth says to her, "Uh, Boaz, this guy named Boaz, boop, light bulb goes off for Naomi. Oh, that's a relative. Oh my goodness, and her heart thaws more. In verse 20, it says, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now here's the word, that's the word right there. Kindness, that's the word hesed who's loving kindness and faithfulness and graciousness and mercy and everything that's wrapped up into this word. He has not forgotten. And she's not talking about Boaz. We read it sometimes and we think she's saying the kindness of Boaz. She is awakening again to the kindness, hesed, steadfast love of her God. And she's going, he hasn't forgotten. She's worshiping him things are beginning to awaken for her again. And then she says this, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, no time to talk about redeemers right now, what that means. You're gonna hear more about that as the story unfolds. But a redeemer, simply put, is a close family relative that in the Israeli culture back then served a great purpose to redeeming a family back to the right inheritance. It had everything to do with inheritance, land, and lineage. And Naomi had lost all of that. And now all of a sudden there is a relative showing the Hesed love of God to them. Now the end of the chapter, I love this. The end of the chapter is so cool how it ends in light of how chapter one ends and how chapter two ends. Chapter one ends with them coming back to Bethlehem. And it says that they come back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley season, which means... That's Passover, the barley season always coincided with the Passover, the beginning of barley season. So Passover, if you remember, if you're not familiar, Passover is when God's people every year would celebrate and remember God for what he had done to deliver his people out of the bondage of a foreign land, Egypt, into the promised land, Canaan. And how he did that by uh, slaughtering a lamb, uh, instructing them to slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their home so that the angel of death would pass over. So remember, nothing is coincidental. Everything is providential. Even God's timing in this story that what better time for them to be coming back into the promised land of God from a foreign land than at the beginning of Passover? Well, that's the end of chapter one. The end of chapter two says, and so she stayed there until the end of barley season, which means if we look at the Jewish calendar, that's the beginning of the feast of the first fruits, which means at the end of barley season, you have Pentecost. So what this story is in and of itself is a story of this foreigner, this Moabite woman who is brought into the family of God and she is being brought in at the same time of Pentecost in the Jewish tradition, fast forward over a thousand years later, this foreigner who didn't have access to the family of God, who was brought in by the grace and hesed love of God, Jesus is ascended. And it's Acts chapter 2, and it's Pentecost. And God pours out his spirit on his people, and what happens? What happened in a little smidgen foreshadowing with Ruth is now a full blown gospel glory for the Gentiles come in, all foreigners. This isn't just for the Jew, it's for you. It's for all of us. God's timing is so cool, even in the foreshadowing of Ruth to what he's gonna do through Jesus. So here's the two things that I want you to walk away with just to think about. As we ask God to press this into our heart. Here's, here's the two things to notice in Ruth chapter two about God. And the first one we see through Boaz, who is a Christ-like figure. And the first one is this, his kindness to the foreigner. I've already alluded to it, but I want you to just sit back in, just for a moment, sit back in with me to the story of what Boaz did for Ruth so far, just in chapter two. Remember what I said about how he didn't just leave her on the outskirts of the field, but he brought her into his table and then even sent her home satisfied and overflowing. Is that not a picture of what God does for us? The foreigner, we are the ones who have sinned against God. The reality for us is that there was no law in place for us that God should allow us in at all, even on the edges of his kingdom. But what he's done is he said this. He said, uh, through the finished work of Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, you now have access into my field, the harvest of the kingdom. And it's not just to come in and be on the edges, on the peripheral, and and be tolerated. Because listen, I want you to hear me on this. That's how many of us function. is we think that God has allowed us into the field of the kingdom of God, but we're just on the edges and he just tolerates us. And he just feels constantly annoyed with us. If you would just get your act together, I would invite you in further, but you keep screwing things up, so stay on the edges and just glean out there and don't bother me. That's how we view God. Remember the question, how do you view God? That's how many of us view him. But the reality of the gospel story that we see evidenced in this foreshadowing of Ruth is that that he doesn't just say, stay on the edges, he says, Because you are so beloved, don't be out there and tolerated. Come to my table and be celebrated. Be brought in. Come and eat with me. Dine with me. Dip your bread into my wine, which, as we begin to see, is the blood of Jesus Himself that we share in His sacrifice with Him to where we have full access to the God of the universe who says this, don't just come and eat a little, come and be satisfied. Fill your soul on me and don't just eat now, but leave from this place and go out into the world around you with an abundance of being in my presence. So that when we walk into the various places, into the various Naomi's of our life, and we carry the grace and the goodness and the love of God in great abundance and we drop it at their feet, they go, where have you been? Where have you been gleaning? And we say, I've been in the presence of God Almighty and I've been sitting and dining at the feet of Jesus and I gotta tell you about him. He satisfies. For now and all of eternity, the kindness of the Lord to the foreigner is abundant. But the second thing is this. Look at his pursuit of the doubter you could kind of make an argument that this story could also be called Naomi, not just Ruth, because she's a key figure in this. And there's a theme in this book of her emptiness to being full. And it's this pursuit of God towards her doubting heart. And we see her awakening a little bit, like I said. Let me read this final quote and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I love this because I know that in this room right now, there are many doubters who are beaten down with the megaphone of their circumstances and have failed to hear the whisper of God's goodness in the midst of hardship. And when we struggle with doubt, we become inactive in our faith until we look to Jesus. And remember, listen to this. When we stop believing in God's goodness and give ourselves over to doubt and worry, we easily sink into despair Despairing inactivity. This can lead to a downward spiral in which our inactivity makes our situation worse and deepens our despair, which in turn makes us feel less inclined than ever to step out into what we believe to be a hostile world. The key to breaking that cycle is grasping hold of God's covenant commitment to do us good. If we can once look to the cross and grasp the height and the depth of the love of God for us in Jesus, then how can we doubt his desire to give us everything necessary for life and godliness? If we feel the smile of the Father's favor toward us in Christ, in spite of our history of sin and failure, then we will be encouraged to step out again in faith. We will still not know what the future holds, yet if we know that the one who holds the future cares for us, that first step upward on the long road back to obedience becomes possible again. Where is your anchor? Are you anchored more in doubt or in faith? May God move in you this morning and from here on out to where you move from the, of one of, of Naomi to Ruth, full of faith in God's steadfast love. Father, thank you for this time together. And thank you for your grace and your goodness that we see so evidenced in your word, this chesed love of God, we give you praise. And we pray that you would make us a people full of faith, even when our hardships and difficulties and sufferings tend to convince us otherwise, may we see and view you as you really are and trust you that you are good.
0: Father, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen